Well, this morning, Deb, why don't you come up? I want to introduce you to my friend, Deb McDermott. Deb and her husband, Jean, have been members here for a long time. And um, Deb is also one of our mentors at our Apples of Gold Women's Mentoring Program. I had the privilege of taking the Apples of Gold class a couple semesters ago um, and so appreciated the way Deb taught about what loving your husband, what biblical husband and wifeship looks like. Um, So we've invited her today just to share a little bit of that with you this morning. So before we get to that, though, Deb, tell us a little bit about you and Jean, how you met, kids, all that. (laughs) Jean and I have been married 42 years. We were married July 5th, 1969, during the Vietnam War, while Jean was in flight training to be a naval aviator. We have four children and nine grandchildren. Each Each of them is our delight, and we entrust them to the Lord daily. That's great. So now I know you and Jean pretty well, but for those, you know, out here who don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about you and Jean and maybe some things you appreciate about each other? Hmm. Well, I think first and most importantly, you need to know that our marriage is grounded in the fact that Christ is our Lord and Savior. That being said, I just wanted to share that if your spouse is not a believer, I hope that what I share will lead you to better understand biblical submission and help you to witness to your spouse perhaps without words and by your godly behavior as the apostle Peter reminds us. Any of you that know Jean and me are keenly aware that God gave my reserved, godly, loving husband an outgoing, comical, loving and com- uh, wife to complement his huge servant heart. Once when I asked him, well, what attracted me to to you? And he answered, oh, I love the way that you can talk to anyone and you're comfortable in large groups of people. Well, I answered, well, what attracted him to me besides his good looks (laughs) was the fact that he never put his foot in his mouth and he never had to apologize for saying the wrong thing. (laughs) Those traits that attracted us to each other are the very traits that God continues to refine in us as we grow old together. Now, he taps me under the table for talking too much, and and I complain to him that he never shares his great insights in the large groups that he shares with me when we're alone. You see, submitting in love is mutual, and it takes a lifetime to learn. We love each other, and each of us is vital to the identity of the other. And I praise God for that. That's beautiful, Deb. So I love the way your marriage works. Um, And just for for our sake here, tell us a little bit about what it looks like in your marriage um, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does that look like in your marriage? Well, when God brought Jean and me together as husband and wife, he didn't change Jean's personality, and nor did he change mine. But instead, he changed his view of us. He saw us as one. Jean loves me in his quiet ways by allowing me to be the demonstrative self that he fell in love with years ago. He completes me in the areas where I'm lacking. He jumps in and shares responsibilities so that everything involved in running a home with four children wasn't dumped on one person alone. For example, After dinner, the children would carry over their dishes, but Gene always carried over mine. He always thanks me for making his dinner, 
He still walks arm in arm with me to my car. And his servant heart allows me to freely serve and share my gifts. I can't name everything that makes him the great guy he is. All I can tell you is that his behavior makes me want to respect and love him. And I thank God for giving him to me. So as one loudmouth wife married to a quiet, (laughs) wonderful man, can you, um, I love the way you talk about that biblical submission doesn't mean changing your personality. Can you tell us a little bit about about for you, what does biblical submission look like in your marriage? Well, Gene knows that he has the final decision over our marriage and family. But, and I'm secure in knowing that he makes those decisions based on his knowledge of my needs and desires because he knows me, he listens to me, and he loves me as a gift from God. I was the one who had to learn this, though. And in the middle of the Women's Live movement, God sent a mentor to me to share the truth of his word on this subject. God showed me that I probably would have been able to get Gene to do whatever I wanted him to because it's easy for an extrovert to dominate. But I knew that Gene loved me and God showed me his better way through Ephesians 5 because you see it was really between Jesus and me. To grow closer to Christ, I had to practice what I'd learned. I needed to think about pleasing Gene before pleasing myself, to think of him in routine things and in routine ways, to make a conscious effort to respect him. I'd do little things, um, like put out his iced tea before he got home from work so that it was chilled and ready for him to have. I'd make his favorite meal and and, uh, just all kinds of little special things. I needed to not take Gene for granted which is also easy. But if you've ever had a spouse come home from war, you never take them for granted again. Sometimes in the summer when I was off work, I'd take him a latte at work as a treat. Or maybe I'd take his car and get it washed to surprise him. But I also needed to respect his position in the family and teach that to our children. Because with my personality, it can look like I run, my, run the show. So one of the things that, just one of the little things we did at our house, for instance, to reinforce um, his position in our family was that whenever there was the last piece of cake, the last brownie, the last cookie, the children or one of the children was not allowed to eat that. They had to go and ask their dad, Dad, do you want the last piece of, of cake? And invariably he would say, no, you can have it if you just give me a bite. So remember, this kind of love reflects Christ, even to a spouse who's not a believer. You see, I can trust Gene because he's always been honest and trustworthy. I don't want or need the final word. Gene gives me a daily taste of how much God loves me. Through loving and respecting and submitting in love to Gene, God has allowed me to have an impact in my own sphere of influence, both within and outside our home. My life has meaning and purpose, and I'm content. Mm 
I've done about 100 weddings at Windsor Road since July of 1989. This is where I stand. And this is the bride. (laughs) Tall, slim, colors. This is the groom. Now, (laughs) the naked eye can't see this in the wedding ceremony because there's the dress and the makeup and there's the tux. But underneath all that, that's what we're looking at. Sometime in the ceremony, I'll say to the bride, do you take you to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold, richer for poor, sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part? What say ye? (laughs) This is what she says. Then I turn to the groom and I say the same thing. Insert wife for husband. What say ye? And this is what he says. And then they go down the aisle there and they start their married life. Now they say things like, now they, now they say things, (laughs) they say things like, I love you and I cherish you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there comes a time, and hopefully it's sooner, where they kind of realize that, you know, this This is, this, is, this, this is just not working the way, the, the way we talked about it. And, and you know, and I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm not being filled like we talked about. And pretty soon, you know, you just get so frustrated and angry. You throw your hands up. And you say something like this, I've had it. I've had it. I don't have anything else to give. And of course you don't. Of course you don't. You know why? Because this isn't designed to give. This was designed to take, to receive, to absorb. And you've got 
two loud vacuum noises merged together into just, what do you get? You, when you combine two loud vacuum noises, you get one big noise. One big, loud, vacuuming noise, and then pretty soon, you get two burned-out motors. That's what you get. And we say to ourselves, you know, how did it come to this? How did it come to this? And that's a good question. And I think part of how it came to this has to do with our culture and how our culture views relationships and marriage. You know, I call it the sleepless in Seattle syndrome, where, you know, we are see this person and we're just attracted to them and, and they're just this amazing individual and, and they just, you know, you know, you, complete, me, you, me, 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 me. And, and, and then you marry and then, I mean, if you're lucky, it happens sooner than later. What happens is, is you come to three unmistakable truths The first is this, this amazing, discerning person that I married is unbelievably selfish, unbelievably selfish. The second truth is this, this amazing, discerning person that I married thinks I'm selfish. And the third is this. The third unmistakable truth is this. That even though I'm selfish, okay, my spouse is more selfish. (laughs) And that's what's crippling our relationship. And guess what your spouse is thinking? And at the end of the day, there's just a lot of noise and a couple of burned out motors. And so is it any wonder when we turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and we read words like submission and love your wives as Christ, love the church, and gave himself up for her, is it any wonder, especially in our liberty-loving culture, that there's pushback? We don't want to hear it. We just want to make more noise. Is there help? Yes, absolutely. And it's in the verses that Katie read from Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 22 to 33. I want to I tell you what the sermon is in a sentence here. I want to summarize all that these 11 verses have to say in just one sentence. And it's simply this. It's what I want you to walk out of here with if you don't walk out of anything else. In the kingdom of Christ. In the kingdom of Christ. In Christ's realm. Christ's domain. Christ's rule. In the kingdom of Christ. God wants marriage filled with the spirit of Christ 
and fueled by the love of Christ. That's the, that's the sermon in a sentence. In the kingdom of Christ, God wants marriage filled with the spirit of Christ and fueled by the love of Christ. And I just want to take this morning to look at those two phrases. Marriage is filled with the spirit of Christ. I want to talk about what that looks like. And then I want to talk about marriage that's fueled by the love of Christ, the selfless love of Christ. Well, Katie began with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You must know that uh, verse 22 is actually an extension of verse 21. Look up at the previous verse. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And uh, the New Testament came to us by way of the Greek language. And in the Greek language, verse 21 is actually a part of one long sentence that you can trace back up to verse 18, where Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul really has not changed the subject when he gets to verse 22. He's talking about a church. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about husbands and wives and marriages that function, that are filled with the Spirit. And what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be influenced and dominated and led by the Spirit. And so Paul says, you know, um, overuse of alcohol has a way of dominating the body uh, and causing reality to be dimmed. What God wants is for you to be dominated by the Holy Spirit. And reality will not be dimmed when that happens. Reality will be clarified. You will see this world as God wants you to see this world. So be filled and dominated and led and influenced and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit lead your life and your marriage. And, and how, you know, how, what's evidence of that? How, how, how does that happen? And well, that's why he then says, well, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives. So Paul hasn't changed the subject. He's still talking about a marriage that is filled and dominated and influenced by the Holy Spirit of Christ. So when we read these verses, we're not talking about two people who, uh, uh, two, as Tim Keller says in his excellent book, The Meaning of Marriage, I recommend it. Our small group is starting it this week. We're not talking about two needy people who aren't sure of themselves and their purpose in life and who feel that they can only find their significance in life if they are in each other's arms. The assumption that Paul makes is that each person in the marriage, they've already settled the big question of life. They, they already realize that they've been made by God and who they are in Christ. The Apostle Paul is assuming that husbands and wives are spirit-filled and spirit-led. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul is assuming that the husband and wife, they understand that their marriage is a part of God's bigger picture. 
A bigger picture which Paul has been explaining all throughout the book of Ephesians. The husband and wife know that uh, God has blessed them in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That husband and wife know that in Christ God has redeemed them and adopted them and chosen them and predestined them and made them heirs and sealed them with his Holy Spirit. That husband and wife know know that there's an apostle praying for them that they may know the hope which is theirs that they may know that that uh they they're the the immeasurable immeasurably rich inheritance they have in the lord meaning that they know how much god treasures them and and we're talking about a husband and a wife who know that they are god's workmanship they're god's poem Poema, created in Christ Jesus to walk in good works. They know that. And they know that their lives, their marriage, is to function as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Whoa. (laughs) A temple of the Holy Spirit. A residence for God the Spirit. They know all of this. So we're not talking about two needy people (laughs) who kind of aren't sure of themselves. And we're not talking about two people who, you know, have bought into the world's view of marriage, which is find someone who will supplement your hopes and dreams, like a vitamin supplement. God's vision for your marriage is that it may fall to the feet of Jesus. Ephesians 1.10, God's master plan is for God to bring everything in heaven and on earth and bring it to the feet of Christ. That's it. See, your marriage does not exist for your comfort. My marriage does not exist for my pleasure. My marriage exists to fall to the feet of Jesus and proclaim him emperor over all. That's what we're talking about when we talk about a marriage filled and dominated by the Spirit. Is your marriage filled and dominated by the Holy Spirit? Is it influenced? Well, if it is, then what I'm about to say next is going to be, it's just going to be fresh water. It is. Because you see, in the kingdom of Christ, God wants marriage filled with the spirit of Christ and fueled by the love of Christ. Fueled by the love of Christ. And here is where we get into the particulars of these verses, beginning with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I have to talk to you about this uh, because what you need to understand, and if you look in your Bibles, you see um, three pairs that follow here, right? Wives and husbands, verse 22, and then chapter six, verse one, children and parents, and then uh, later on, you've got slaves and masters, And that's not there by accident. 
Uh, in fact, in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, the world of, of the first century, uh, those three pairs of relationships uh, were under the subject of what uh, the ancients called the household code. The household code. The household code was a list of cultural norms or cultural expectations uh, for the stability of the family in the Roman world. Uh, the Roman Empire uh, was very uh, pro-family to the extent that the Roman Empire would have these household codes uh, communicated to the patriarch of the household, the family, for the purpose of maintaining order because the Roman Empire held that stability of the empire was contingent on stability in the nuclear family. And so the patriarch, the patriarch would, would remember these expectations in terms of relationships in marriage and in family and in relationships with uh, servitude. And what's significant about this is that in the Roman culture... The code was always addressed to the patriarch, always to the patriarch, for the benefit of the patriarch, to make sure that the patriarch would keep control of the household, you see, because control in the household eventually meant control in the empire, the household code. So when the Ephesians first heard about these pairs, as this letter was first given to them 2,000 years ago, They would listen to it, but then they were absolutely amazed at what's going on here because the Apostle Paul addresses the individuals in that household, something that the Roman Empire never, ever did. The Roman Empire only mentioned the patriarch as if the patriarch, patriarch, you make sure this happens in your marriage, you make sure this happens in your parenting, you make sure this happens with you and your slave. Here, the Apostle Paul just turns it on its head and in the power of the gospel transforms it. And so he mentions, he goes directly to the wives, directly to the children, and directly to the slaves, the, the very lowest in that society. So we look at this as 21st century Americans, and it doesn't mean a whole lot to us to even see these individuals named, but you, you can't begin to know uh, how radical this was the way this is written. And so Paul addresses his Christian sisters who are married and says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submit. Yes, that's the S. Well, that's a dirty word to Americans, isn't it? Huh? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. To submit is not to park your brain at the door. To submit is not to follow your husband into sin. To submit is not to aid or abet your husband's sin. To submit is, uh, to submit is not to avoid confronting your husband about sin. To submit does not mean you avoid trying to influence your husband to become more and more like Christ. 
To submit does not mean putting your husband's will before the will of Christ. And to submit does not mean that you primarily get your strength and source of value through your husband. And to submit does not mean you act out of fear. That's what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean? It means this. It means simply to defer. To, to, to yield right of way. To give way. It means that you affirm and honor your husband's leadership and you use your gifts to carry it through. And you do this, you do this because Jesus Christ is your savior, as Paul says in verse 23, not your husband. Your husband's not your savior, Jesus is. And it's important to note that this word submit is in um, what grammarians call the middle voice, the middle voice. In the Greek language, we have different voices, and one voice is the active voice, the active voice, I submit, I submit. The passive voice, I am submitted, as if some outside force is causing me to submit, okay? Neither of those voices are in verses 22, 23, or 24. Rather, the voice is called the middle voice, the middle voice which is translated, I submit myself. I'm doing this to myself. It's as if Jesus says, because I have redeemed you and adopted you and made you my heir, will you, out of reverence for me, willingly defer to the leadership of your husband? Will you honor and affirm your husband's leadership? And will you use your gifts to help carry his leadership through. There is not a verse in the Bible that tells me that it's my responsibility to make Sarah submit to me. That's that's not my job. That's between her and Jesus. And Christian sisters who are wives, that's between you and Jesus. What's important to note as we continue in verses 25 and following is that the rest of the instructions deal with husbands. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So Paul has already defined a husband's role as headship. So the husband is the head of his family, is the head of his marriage. So that's not the question. The question is, what kind of head is he? And Paul says that a husband's headship must be selfless and other, it must be selfless, other-centered love to the benefit of his wife. So the husband in Christ is not to use his headship to manipulate or dominate or intimidate or demean. He is to use his headship to initiate, to initiate loving service just like Jesus. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Don't you remember in John's gospel the night before Christ was crucified, there in the upper room, when Jesus uh, took out his outer garment and he put on uh, the, the towel and he knelt 
uh, beside the disciples and began to scrub their mud-caked, toe-jammed-infested feet. And all the while, what were they doing? They were arguing with one another about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then Jesus is scrubbing their feet. Was there any question in any of the disciples' minds while this was going on as to who was in charge? Verse 25 says, And he gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. What is that? That means it's my job to protect her. It's my job to protect her physically and spiritually. And so if at two in the morning, you know, there's a sound of breaking glass downstairs, both of us awake, and and there's a burglar downstairs, I don't turn to her and say, hey, we've got an egalitarian marriage. I went last time, it's your turn now. No, mister, you get your fanny down there with the ball bat and you take care of business. That's what you do. And she can swing the ball bat over your dead body. Otherwise, you're no man. (laughs) And woe is the husband who sends his wife to fight his enemies. Hmm. So it's my job to protect her. And then we read verses 26 to 28. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Well, what is that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish? What is, what is this about? See, so the question is, how is my headship leading my wife to have her inner self become more and more and more holy and sanctified like Christ? How is my leadership moving in such a way that my wife would love Jesus more and more and more and want to become like him more and more and more? You you understand, don't you? These marital roles are temporary. You know, in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies, it's going to be all new. So what Paul says to Christian men is, I want you to start treating your wives now the way she's going to be in heaven. In heaven, my wife will have a sinless, glorified body without spot or blemish. She's going to be perfect. Now, Randy, you treat her now the way she's going to be later. And my headship is not helping my wife become more and more like Jesus and love him more and more, then I need to repent. I need to repent. And I'll tell you how this looked in our marriage here. Not proud of this. So over here in this room here last hour, uh, you know, Sarah began last week teaching an apologetics class uh, for the women in our church. And... Um, it's based on William Lane Craig's book, On Guard. 
She started studying for this thing months ago. I mean, months ago, you know? And so it's like after a while, this other guy moved in. William Lane Craig, I come home, he's on the monitor. He's on the iPod. It's William Lane Craig this, William Lane Craig. I mean, I'm into apologetics too, but I mean, my goodness, really. You know, I come home from work and it's like, hello. I mean, I don't like to say it's about me, but I want it to be about me. And, you know, not very long ago, it's like the Holy Spirit just kind of cut me to the heart. It said, Randy, Sarah is, you know, trying to master some you know, not so simple concepts like the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. You could have worse problems in your life than that, you know. And then the Holy Spirit said, you could help, too. You could help. You can initiate a conversation. You can engage. You can sit down with her when she's listening to Bill. Okay? Now, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You're going to help? And, and you know, there's only three choices. You can help with a happy spirit. You can help with a grumpy spirit. Or you can just be selfish and not help. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Husbands, how does your headship reflect the love of Christ? And how does your headship help your wife love Jesus more and more? How does that happen? Huh. And some of you are saying, yeah, well, okay, well, but if I, if I serve for my spouse's joy, what do I get out of it? What do you get out of it? You get joy. That's what you get out of it. Because your spouse's joy is your joy. The two shall become one. You get the joy of being selfless versus being a manipulative and bossy pig. That's what you get. You get the joy of imitating Christ. You get the joy of serving your spouse, not because your spouse deserves it, but because Jesus is your king and you love him more than you love your spouse and this is what the king wants you to do. Now what are you gonna do? And so when Paul says in verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Is that not what our king did 
When he left the family of the Trinity, the community of the Trinity, one being, three persons, and he left, and he went looking for a wife, and that's us, and he joined, and we became one flesh. This is what Jesus did. Well, listen, what Jesus, Jesus' selflessness on the cross was in essence nothing different than what had happened in all eternity with the Father and the Spirit. This community of self-giving love. Is this not the gospel? And is this not what we're called to? And, and, and so what do you want to do? And I know that some of you are here today, and I know this question has been entering your mind. You came with this question, and you wonder, if, is it going to be addressed? And let me try to do this as best as I can. But what if my spouse isn't a Christian? What do I do? What do I do? And 1 Peter 3 tells us, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband. One, in other words, one person can start the healing. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. If your spouse comes to Christ, it's not going to be because they were nagged into the kingdom. It's because of your pure and respectful conduct. And I know for a fact that some of you who are sitting with your spouse now used to come alone, but your respectful and pure conduct over time melted your husband's heart. And now he's sitting with you. And God be praised. God be praised. In the kingdom of Christ, God wants marriage filled with the spirit of Christ and fueled by the love of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died so that I might no longer live for myself. Is, is that not the essence of sin, living for myself? But that I might live for him, Jesus Christ. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna challenge you to look in the mirror of your soul and ask yourself some questions like, Am I willing to see that the greatest threat in my marriage is my selfish heart? That's the greatest threat. The greatest threat in my marriage is not Sarah's selfish heart. It's my selfish heart. It's my self-centeredness. Am I willing to take my selfishness more seriously? Am I willing to do that? And am I willing not to think less of myself or more of myself, but simply to think of myself less? Am I willing to do that? This is so radical, and this is so threatening to the realm of darkness. Is it any wonder that what immediately follows in the household code is a discussion on spiritual warfare? Do you believe in demons and principalities and powers and the darkness and Satan? Do you believe in it? Paul did. It's no surprise that we see this 
on the heels of a discussion about marriage relationships. I want to leave you with some questions here for you to consider. Some homework, please. Husbands, your question is this. What do I need to do to love my wife in a Christ-like way so that she becomes more and more like him? What is it? What do you need to do? Okay. Wives, what do I need to do to affirm my husband's leadership? What do I need to do? And then can I just challenge our couples here, our married couples here, to uh, please consider taking our next dynamic marriage uh, series that's coming. Uh, Kevin and Katie, would you raise your hands here? Flint. Kevin and Katie are going to be leading uh, our next dynamic marriage series here on the 26th of February. And um, scholarships are available. We, We have... Uh, capacity of 12 couples uh, in terms of attendance dynamic and I think there's room for about another five couples maybe six and so I would just ask that you consider if you want to if you want to explore these questions further I would encourage you this will deepen and enrich your marriage I'd ask you to remember that right now it's time to do some business with Jesus and I want us to get ready for that as we prepare to um, meet around the Lord's table, I want to share with you uh, just a quote from an author I really enjoy. His name is Paul David Tripp, and it's from his book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. The shattered relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the cross provides the basis for our reconciliation. No other relationship ever suffered more than what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit endured when Jesus hung on the cross and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to be the rejected son so that our families would know reconciliation. Jesus was willing to be the forsaken friend so that we could have a loving marriage. Jesus was willing to be the rejected Lord so that we could live in loving submission to one another. Jesus was willing to be the forsaken brother so that we could have godly relationships. Jesus was willing to be the crucified king so that our communities and our church and our marriage might experience peace. Has not Paul said, he himself is our peace. Jesus Christ was willing. Are we 